We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty. So you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Syllable and Brains. Who are Syllable and Brains? Well, they were a hip-hop duo from Huntington Beach, California, who rose to prominence in the UK scene during the early 2000s. They were branded as the next big thing in globally-oriented rap. They had larger-than-life personas, were former protégés of Eminem, and had the lyrics and rapping skills to back up their jackass-inspired prankster natures. Only issue being, Syllable and Brains lied their way to the top. Act 1. Remember Wee Man? Persona. The ever-elusive architecture of the self. The crystalline castle of all your greatest qualities. Or maybe your weakest moments. If you were going to build a persona with the explicit point of catapulting yourself to the highest echelons of fame and fortune, what would it consist of? Would you position yourself as a member of the intellectual elite? Someone from a similar background as to where you're naturally from? An impassioned advocate of the downtrodden? Someone who has an inflated sense of self? Someone who's the exact opposite of who you are? Orson Welles constructed a persona for himself before he made his mark on the worlds of acting, theater, and film. He literally went to Scotland and traveled around attempting to find work as a painter. With little success in the field, the autodidact devoted himself to the stage. He approached an acclaimed Scottish theater company and claimed to be a boy genius theater director wunderkind from America, with numerous productions under his belt. Being someone who was a voracious reader and blessed with a massive heaping of self-confidence, he landed the role of director for the company, or at least that's how the urban legend goes. Because the internet didn't exist then, there was no way for anyone to verify his claims. So he embarked on directing one of his many adaptations of Shakespeare. And thankfully, our young Orson had the skills to back up his blustering persona. A few short years later, when Orson moved to New York, with sights set on Broadway, he pulled a similar ruse, only with the added truth that he had in fact now been a director in Scotland. And guess what? It worked again. And Orson Welles' loose affiliation with what many would term the truth would grow into legend. The rotund, iconic filmmaker would have an ever-elastic relationship with concepts like fact and honesty. And this path to success, whether knowingly or not, was emulated by two young men who claimed to be from San Jacinto, California, or Huntington Beach, depending on the day or the week that you ask them. So where did these two rap phenomenons actually meet? Dundee, Scotland, at the aptly named Dundee College. In an additionally cinematic meet-cue, our two twin protagonists met when Gavin Baines literally fell into a college class ten minutes late, scooped himself up off the floor like a human cartoon character, feigned an over-the-top apologetic behavior to the professor. 
He then sat down next to his future artistic collaborator, Billy Boyd. In an era run by jackass, skateboarding videos, and flat-ironed haircuts, these two boys from Scotland were anything but. Their lower middle-class clothes and rough Scottish brogues belied a future filled with small-town pub fights, no award show shenanigans, and definitely no platinum records on their walls. Billy Boyd was from Dundee. He'd never lived anywhere else in his whole entire life, and he'd been dating the same girl, Mary, since they were young teenagers. Gavin Baines' family moved to a neighboring town to Dundee when he was just a child from South Africa. Being the eternal immigrant, Baines had to reinvent himself as a Scottish teenager. He gradually lost the accent and attempted to become the picturesque Scottish man. He only lacked one thing, self-confidence, which is exactly what drew him to Billy Boyd. Boyd's charisma was a thing of legend. He exuded it. When they would go to pubs, Boyd was the life of the party. The slightly portly young man made up for his lack of physical attractiveness with his sheer force of will. Why? Something Gavin- Why the shots fired? <laughs> I mean, dude, that's that's the that is. I think that's like hardwired into who this guy is. Like, did you notice? Did you end up watching that documentary that I I, I recommended did. to you? Yes. Yeah. He his haircuts in every so. This is running a little bit, but we're going to talk later about the, they end up having a documentary made about them during the course of this uh, called The Big, the Great Hip Hop Hoax. And it has a lot of footage from when they were teenagers meeting in college and or not teenagers, but when they were meeting in college and hanging out at pubs and because they filmed themselves a lot. And Billy Boyd's hairstyle choices, fashion choices, they are so blatantly... I'm trying to be of the moment because I'm self-conscious about my body. Like his facial hair where he had three different tiers of cuts put into his sideburns and beard, like three jagged lines cut into them. Yeah. Oof. That is a look. But still, he, he had, he exuded confidence, which made up for the fact that he was an ugly piece of shit. (laughs) No, man, I, but I think those things are I think those things are interrelated. Like when you're somebody who is not what society deems as a typical or archetypical uh, type of beauty, you find ways of endearing yourselves to your fellow humans, right? You find ways of compensating and navigating social situations. And uh, I mean, B- Billy Boyd, you, you can say a lot of things about him. You can call him a rotund little bitch, but you know what? That motherfucker's got charisma. I don't actually think he's rotund. <laughs> I don't know why I'm just going after that's this guy way, yeah, so that, hard. That's the way you latched onto. You just you, this whole you went deep into the research, and what you came out with was fuck that guy's face. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't actually think that at all. I mean, I'm. I think he's a perfectly fine looking dude. I just mean when you're trying to be someone who is. Uh, you know, a globally recognized superstar, typically those people look like the motherfuckers that are on the CW. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where you're like grown in a vat of attractive people, like Samara Weaving. Is she a human? I don't know. Her face is so symmetrical, it's hard to look at. I'm like, what the fuck? Where did you come from? Yeah. And like the the other, the band um, that is featured in the documentary that I guess they were friends with and hung out with, which they're either, I think they're another Scottish band um which uh they actually they they performed that song year 3000 that ended up being covered by the Jonas brothers and that was like a big hit for them 
Um, but it was originally this band. I think they're called Busted. Um, and yeah, those those guys, they all look like underwear models. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is not our boy Syllabill and, and Brains. <laughs> <laughs> they were distinctly the jackass model of human, where it's like, I will just do whatever the fuck I have to do to get on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's pissing in someone's hands and then having them rub it in my face, that's fine. That's what I'll do. And if it's spending a minimum of four hours a day flat ironing my hair. Yep. That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. The slightly portly young man made up for his lack of physical attractiveness with sheer force of will. Just Something had Gavin to read Baines. it again. <laughs> <laughs> something Gavin Baines lusted after. The two discovered a mutual love of hip-hop, though. Eminem, D12, and Wu-Tang Clan. They started to write their own rap songs as a hobby. This quickly ballooned into a serious passion. Gavin Bain became obsessed with the idea of turning their hip-hop dalliances into a path forward. This is how they were going to escape the life constructed around them, which bar they would be drinking in tonight forever. Baines and Boyd and their friend Oscar Bravo Kirkwood started Bee Production, their own would-be Scottish Wu-Tang. Gavin became addicted to producing music. He was a demon with a singular fixation. He learned everything he could about the art and technical side of music production. He insisted that the other members study dictionaries and build up word banks. The only issue being, after struggling, self-producing work and honing their skills, and failing to produce any serious traction within Scotland, they found themselves staring down the concept of, they might not be God's gift to hip-hop, and then they got what they thought was their big break. It was a talent search competition for rappers happening in London, England. They performed an audition for record label execs where they were literally laughed out of the room. And then we see this thing online that says, are you the next Eminem? This audition in London. So we take the 13 hour bus journey down. We get to Covent Garden super early in the morning. The queue is going around the block twice. We get into the audition. And so we go on, I start to rap. And then he just stop us after about 30 seconds. The guy was like, look, there's Scotland and there's rap. We can't sell Scottish rap. You will never, ever make it in rap. And they basically, they get called the, the rapping proclaimers. And that's kind of their, like, that's their, their, their crushing low where they, they thought they were going to go to this audition. They thought they were going to win this, this rap contest, this American Idol before American Idol. And uh, they just got hard node. Just fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, what, what, between, like, I, I, my, my knowledge of it isn't super in-depth. But uh, just from my basic knowledge of it and watching train spotting, why does everybody in the UK hate Scottish people so much? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know either, dude. But like it's it it is palpable. Like they, they talk about it all of the time. I would say it's something it's some weird like phenomenon of the way that we make fun of gingers. But then there's also the Irish, which don't seem to be as hated. Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing. I don't know. I don't know enough about United Kingdom history and its colonial aspects to really be able to. If we have any, if we have any Scottish listeners out there, email us at Andrew at deepcutspod.com or Dave at deepcutspod.com. Choose your favorite. Let's, yeah, but let's be real. If you email me, I probably won't. Oh yeah, see it. Dave I don't or, even know if I've ever even logged into that yeah. email address. Never mind. Email Andrew at deepcutspod.com. Even if you prefer Dave, 
Yeah, if you prefer me, you can just address the email to me when sending it to Andrew. I don't want to cause controversy, but with Dave, the feeling is not mutual. But the uh, feeling is not mutual. Wait, what does that mean? There, the, any, any of your stands, your, the, the feeling is not mutual. I have love for my stands. I will respond to every email. Um, but Dave can't even Dave can't even give you the respect of initial like opening up his email account for the first time. Um, yeah, I need, I need to do that. <laughs> but uh, email us if you're a Scottish listener. Email us and let us know why do people hate Scottish people so much in the UK? Yeah, what's the story there? Also, our one listener from New Zealand who joined the Facebook group, maybe they know. Do you have any yeah. insight into this person you, from New Zealand? Do you're you, not American. Yeah, maybe you. that's maybe that's the key. Maybe you just have to be not American to know this uh, piece of information. Yeah, your accent sounds kind of like a South African accent. And um, our boy Gavin Bain is originally from South Africa and he's Scottish. So <laughs> let us know. Yeah, let us know. They were crushed by this rejection. But also let us know what it's like not living in a apocalyptic world. Yeah. Where you can actually yeah, what's go it outside like to and not have stormtroopers marching down your streets. Or just a horrible deadly virus. Yeah, that too. They were crushed by this rejection, but not just the rejection of the judges, the fact that they didn't fit in with the other people at the auditions. They felt that they didn't have the right clothing, that they just didn't have the right looks, and also that they were, bluntly put, white, and worse, Scottish. That's one aspect of this story that I feel like they kind of gloss over repeatedly, is that they make these kind of like weird allusions to like, I understand what it's like to be a minority because I'm Scottish. Dave, people, we just we just talked about this. People hate Scottish people. Yeah, I still feel like I don't know. I don't know. There's something weird going on there for me. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not well well informed enough about the institutionalized slavery of the Scots. Well, I mean, I don't know because do they really say that? I don't think they I don't think they say like anything about being a minority they they do they do a couple they never they never you're right they don't actually say those words but in various interviews they make very coded responses that are basically like yes we were pretending to be american and posing in that way but we know what it's like to be this set and we know that our skills are uh what our skills are and and we we adhere to the the sacred core of hip-hop and of you know authenticity and and in air quotes, keeping it real. Like we, we know what that life is like because of this adversity that we've faced in these small towns as Scottish dudes. Um, yeah. And I don't know, is, do you? Maybe it, they do. I don't know. That, it, that, that just rings kind of false to me. I don't know. I, 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 maybe you saw, I don't, I didn't, I don't think I personally saw anything like that. I saw them saying that they, what I, the thing that I saw them say multiple times was more along the lines of we weren't Millie Vanilli our personas were fake, but our talent was real. That's what I saw. I, I never saw them saying anything about like, we understand what it's like to be from the streets or whatever. I only, yeah, I only I mean, ever saw right. them kind you're, of saying, you are like, right. they, they talk more. You're, you're correct. It is more that I'm primarily, you might, you might've of, saw something that I didn't. I'm primarily thinking of an interview that where they were talking about Iggy Azalea. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of, yeah. I saw that too. Yeah, they were kind of talking about her in this very dismissive way of like, she's white and she twerks. That's her gimmick, blah, 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 blah. And it, I mean, I don't like her music, but I also don't like their music either. So, you know, it, 
it felt like there was an interesting conversation to be had in general, just around the idea of appropriation and um, their use, their literal appropriation of American culture, and then their also their appropriation of Black culture, and then their obvious passion for both of those things. Like you don't live for a half a decade as an American without some sort of weird passion for it in some way. Like even if it's just osmosis you know what i mean or osmosis jones they just saw that a movie very a underrated lot. film they saw that movie a lot and they were just like let's go live inside bill murray that was their end game yeah <laughs> yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna become rappers we're gonna pretend like we're americans we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna hang out with eminem we're gonna get hugely popular we're gonna go out on tour then we're gonna get so rich that we fund some kind of medical research that is able to shrink us down and then we can live inside of bill murray for the rest our of our tour lives bus. On our tour bus, we only watch Inner Space, Osmosis Jones, and that other movie where they shrink down and go inside a guy, but I can't remember. Uh, Fantastic Voyage? Yes. Something Voyage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those three movies. Those are the only movies we watch, motherfucker. Movies with normal-sized people? I don't think so. The Borrowers? Okay, maybe. Secret Life of Arietti? Still The Borrowers, but okay. Not Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. We're talking about living inside of a person. We don't want to deal with any of that, like being lost in a fucking lawn, fighting scorpions and shit. That sounds scary. That's what I'm saying. Joe Johnston, he used all the original storyboards that were by fucking, what's his face, director of Reanimator, who got fired at the last second. Did Joe Johnston even direct that movie? I don't know. I don't know. All those storyboards weren't his. What I'm saying is I want to live inside of Bill Murray. Look at me right now. Do you see this face? My face is slowly evolving into Bill Murray's face. That's how deep my passion is. We will shrink ourselves. (laughs) I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. (laughs) We're talking about transhumanism, Dave. Mm -hmm. Gavin, Billy, and Oscar were crestfallen. Moments of opportunity didn't come often when you lived in Scotland. This could have literally been their only chance at a big break, but they refused to give in. They started working harder on music, recording more, rehearsing more, but they didn't have anything to do with this material. Out of frustration, they began calling every record label in London to no avail. They just wanted to show someone their work, but it was just a sea of rejection. Until one day, Billy Boyd fell into a genius level grift. So we started phoning and we were saying like, hi, we're uh, rappers from Scotland, can you, uh, and it was hang up. And so we tried again, like, hi, uh, we're, a, we're a hip-hop group um, from Dundee. Ooh. No one was interested. Oh, sorry, guys, it's not a thing. It's not what we're looking for. We felt like we were back in the audition in London again. It was my turn to phone for a complete joke and to sort of pick our spirits up. I spoke an American accent. Hey, we're from California and we're coming to London to try and get a show. And people were like, oh wow, can you send us on your music? And we were like, what? Like, really? So we did it again and we tried and we were hi, we're from California and we'd love to send you guys our demo. And oh yeah, send us it, this is, this, this is great, you're really interested. And it kind of felt like, but we're the same, same music, it's the same thing, so why would we, why would we be interested? That was kind of shocking, you know, that, that was just kind of like, okay, this has got nothing to do with how good we are. This has got nothing to do with talent. If you want to get on a label, then you just have to be marketable. This is what we're doing wrong, Dave. Whenever we talk to people, 
and they ask us, we say, oh yeah, like I, I was born and raised in New Mexico or Arizona, moved to LA in like X year. We just have to say that we're from California. Yes. That definitely is the moral to take away from that. We, have to, we, wouldn't, have to, we wouldn't have to be doing this shit. <laughs> None of this fucking podcast bullshit. <laughs> to his surprise, the record exec on the other end was amenable and asked to hear his work. Literally the only time this had ever happened. In shock silence, Gavin Baines suggested an idea that would fundamentally alter the course of the two boys' lives forever. In a soft voice, he sheepishly suggested an idea that was so insane, so outlandish, and so stupid that it just might work. You want to read that in a Scottish accent? What if, what if we moved to London and pretended to be <laughs> American? <laughs> what if we, what if, what if we moved to London and pretended to be? <laughs> what if we? I can't. I can't. I can't do it. And the funny thing is, like. I feel like I fuck up on like impersonations all the time on this show, but like I sometimes I can do them, but I can't do it like on cue. Like I can slip into something and obviously it's subjective, but I feel like I can do pretty good impersonations of things sometimes, but yeah. like I can't do it on purpose. No, I can. It has can to like to organically happen. Yeah. So you, you, you definitely have the impression skill, but man. It's like a it's like an untamed horse. Yeah, when you when you're when you're on like a really good impression streak, it is great. But when I ask you, "Hey, can you do a Scottish accent to end this act?" it is so bad. God damn it. What if we moved to London and pretended to be Americans? It reminds me of that time that I suggested that we should pretend to be Americans so that we could do this podcast. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Act 2. Can you remake me, bro? Art is context. It's the idea of constructing a pocket universe where the artist defines the world and its rules. A true artist excels at constructing a narrative, whether it's Picasso's recontextualization of perspective focal points or Duchamp's trickster approach to an artist's relationship with the physical space and act of creation. Or Orson Welles and his brilliant ability to reshape his personal history. All these artists are recontextualizing themselves within a whole, they're building a pocket universe for themselves and their work. Their main issue here being, history is written by the winners. So, are these creators charlatans? Did Orson Welles lie his way to the top? 
did Picasso steal his plain old asymmetry from African masks and just conveniently forget to mention it? Did Duchamp just make a mockery of a millennia of artists who dedicated themselves to mastering a craft out of sheer laziness? Inarguably, yes, but they still won in the end. And here we are discussing them now, decades after they've left the mortal coil. And this is the internal conversation that Billy Boyd and Gavin Baines were having with themselves. Should we do this? Can we get away with this? What happens if we get caught? All of these ran through their heads. And the answer that they inevitably landed on was... Fuck it. Let's roll the dice. (laughs) 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 Fuck it. Let's roll the dice. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why? And the answer they inevitably landed on was, fuck it, let's roll the dice. They had settled on it. Gavin and Billy were going to move to London, they were going to hard reboot their lives, and they were going to attempt to fool record execs into thinking that they were California-based rappers. They approached Oscar Bravo Kirkland, the third member of B Production, about the idea, but he just couldn't do it. The soft-spoken man didn't have the fortitude to pursue such an enterprise. Bluntly put, he didn't have a psychopathic level of dedication that both Gavin Baines and Billy Boyd did. And he's probably better off because of it. Well, now they'd said it aloud. They'd spoken the chaos magic ritual. They'd said it to each other. Now, they had to do it. They had to pursue this till the ends of the earth. Baines and Boyd procured maps and information about California because neither of them had ever been there. They came up with fake backstories. They re-recorded all their music with their new accents. They began to develop their new personas further. They built out Syllabil and Brains. The lamest names ever. Yeah. It's like Brains, what was it? Brains McCoy or? Brains McCloud. Brains McCloud. Yeah. What? Brains McCloud is, is Gavin Baines' character's name. And... Syllabill, which is a play on both silly bill and syllable, like the you know multiple the yeah. the, the micro unit that make up sentence uh, syllable and brains syllable and brains and it's not even and brains it's mm brains. brains syllable mm brains remember we've talked about this it's 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 really it's it's so strange it's so surreal. That you know, we're as we're getting into this and discovering what they're what they did and the trajectory of the story. Remember when we talked about this on a, on a previous episode? This idea. We talked about these guys. No, we, we talked about this thing. I forget what episode it was on, but we specifically talked about number one how I had always wanted to. Oh, the I, thing where you always pretended to be an English kid, or some, or no, you went to and you pretended to be a foreign kid at like a improv class or no. Summer class or something. Yeah, well, two, well, you're mixing up two things. The first thing is that I had always wanted to just start a class and just have like a weird accent and just like do the whole class like that. And I just never I never followed through with it because I just always kind of forgot to do it starting in the class and just never happened. But then the other thing that we talked about was that we went to this d- day long improv festival slash workshop that was at a college and me and my friend decided to just do the whole thing as these like eastern european characters 
I mean, number one, it was in in some shades, it was fun. I think the funnest part of it was that we did the whole thing the whole day and like actually got people buying into it. And then the sort of reveal at the end, because we all every school did like a scene. And so we did a scene from Chicago and our characters just had like fully American accents. And, you know, I guess maybe somebody might have been like, oh, yeah, they're just really good at doing American accents. But like it was I don't I don't think anybody thought that like it was blatant. Like anybody who was in the audience was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, but so there was parts of it that were fun. But I think overwhelmingly. The the main takeaway I took from it was it was immediately exhausting. And I wanted to stop doing it after the first hour. Like it, it, we talked, it was the Andrew WK episode because I talked about how, you know, getting trapped in the persona and how it's probably almost kind of like torturous. And I, we were talking about that and I was saying like, I, I did that for like a day for like eight hours. And in the, in the first hour I was already over it and I was, and I just was like, fuck, like we have to keep doing this. Like we can't, it would be so awkward to just stop this right now. So we just have to commit to this. And it's like, it's just, it's exhausting to have to keep that up. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's so surreal and interesting from multiple perspectives. Cause number one, it's so crazy that they did it and that they lived like this for years but also it's crazy that they did it and nobody ever noticed or nobody ever realized. Nobody was like, they never slipped out of it. Nobody was ever like, wait a minute. Didn't you just speak in a Scottish? I mean, that maybe kind of happened once, but nobody was ever like, wait a minute. You guys aren't American. And that's and that's really crazy because the first thing that pops into mind, the show Farscape. You have me. It was an American show. It was created by an American but it was a an Australian production. It was all shot in Australia. And so uh, some of the key main characters were American and, you know, they had just relocated to, to Australia. But the most of the the cast of the show, the the larger cast of the show were all Australian actors. And so the show is I mean, some of the characters are doing accents, um, but a lot of the characters on the show are Australian actors try like doing American accents because they're trying to make the show feel like an American show. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, which is what happens a lot. Like a lot of shows are shot in Canada and it's all can Canadian actors, except for maybe the few of the main actors. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they try, they, re they really try to swallow their Canadianism because they're trying to make the show feel American. Um, but the, the tell with, with those actors on Farscape is no matter how convincing their American accent is, they always let the intrusive R slip in because people in Anglo countries like Australia, the UK, when there's two consonants next to each other in, a, in two words, like if a word ends with a consonant and then begins with a consonant, no, it's, it's not, it's not ends with a consonant and begins with a consonant. It's ends with a consonant and then begins with a vowel. So, Here's an example. In the United States, we say law and order, but in the UK or Australia, they say law and order. They add an R between W and A, and it just it makes it smoother to say. It, it, it allows you to 
like it to kind of roll off your tongue. Um, and it's just it's an affectation that's specific to those regions. So that's the tell is even though they're all doing convincing American accents, they still put the R in. They still use the intrusive R. Um, and I actually learned that from watching Farscape because I was like, what? I was kind of curious about like, I, I can tell that there's something off about their their dialect that's like making it obvious that they're actually Australian. But I couldn't quite wrap my mind around what it was. And so I looked it up and discovered this thing about the intrusive R and the how it's used. And, and like I said, once again, you watch that show and a lot of the actors are doing very convincing American accents, but it's a TV show. So there's a lot more dialogue and it's over a longer period of time. I think you can control that more in a movie and, you know, you can convincingly get away with Christian Bale seeming like he's totally American. And to the point where like a lot of people didn't realize he was uh, British for a long time because he was doing the American accent in interviews because he said he didn't want to be doing an interview and to confuse kids and for them to be like, what, Batman is British? So he would actually do the accent in interviews. And so a lot of people just didn't realize he was British. Um, but over that longer period of time of watching a TV show with multiple seasons, those things, those, those things slipped through the cracks. And it's so it's even crazier that they got away with this for two years or whatever it was. And nobody ever was like, you sound like you're Scottish doing an American accent. Yeah. Like that never happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it's uh, a testament to their commitment. They decided that they were from San Jacinto, which also I live in fucking California. Never heard of San Jacinto before. And I thought that shit was made up. I thought they just made up a city in California, but they didn't. It's a real place. I mean, that's kind of part of the genius. Like if they had said they were from LA Imagine how much ground that they would have to cover. They would have to yep. learn so much about it. It's this huge thing with all these different cultural pieces of iconography and, and reference points. Um, but just some super obscure little town in like the greater Los Angeles area that just has nothing significant about it. It's just far less things that you have to learn. And it also sounds kind of more convincing. Like it just it's like. It's so obscure that it seems real, and so you don't question it. They'd turn themselves into Jim Carrey and Jackass and Red Man, walking, talking cartoons. They'd buy all new clothes. They'd remake themselves as skate kids, punk rappers. They leaned into their natural frat boy antics, but then dialed them up 500%. They didn't know anything about American culture, though, so they developed a system. During interviews, only one of the boys would, in air quotes, lead and the other one would, in air quotes, support. Meaning whatever lies Boyd was telling, Baines was not to contradict him and would to play support. He'd play backup. He'd try and shore up any narrative weaknesses and just generally play continuity cop. Think the dude bro version of yes and. They were exceedingly dedicated. They had sex in this accent. They lived in this accent. And remember, this is before they actually moved to London. They were still living in Scotland in their small towns, working their odd jobs, being unemployed, and just pretending to be American. After a time period of studying, they finally saved up enough money to move to London and lived in a single studio room apartment with Baines's sister, still being American 24 hours a day. I can't really imagine what that would be like. Like if my sister just rolled up and was like, okay, I'm going to live with you now in 
this tiny ass studio apartment, but I'm just going to do an English accent all day, every day. I would strangle her. Like not only would I strangle her for living in my fucking studio, but also being this character that is so annoying and like theater kid, look at me attention seeking behavior that I just, I, I, I couldn't even handle that. I'd love it. No, you wouldn't. I'd join in. Would you really? Would you really? I'd break out my Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be like, let me be in your rap group. I'll be the talking Scottish guy. (laughs) People will really believe it after I join in. I love love that you are attempting to do this. I don't even know what it sounds like. No, you really don't. No. I think I, I think it's like a wholly unique sound. I think I've invent. I think I've made a. I think I've made an accent that nobody has ever heard before. So they'd done it, right? They'd moved to London. All the hard stuff was over. Well, no, no record labels even knew who they were. They wanted to make a big statement. They needed to get seen. They needed to be in the scene. But how? And then a golden opportunity landed in their laps again. They landed a gig at a local London talent showcase. They showed up in character. They waited to go on. And, well, they followed a boys to men R&B singing group. The crowd was against them. They weren't excited about these two white rappers. They really didn't want any punk dudes running around on stage. And then Syllable and Brains said the magic words. We Oh, yeah, never mind. I could just... <laughs> You can just say it. You can just say it. You don't have to do it in the accent. We're from California, dudes. And the crowd started cheering. They had found the skeleton key to reality. Their gig went well. They performed their set, even battle rapping in between songs to each other. And when they got off stage, an Island Records exec named Chris Rock approached them. He said he wanted to make a record. He wrote down a list of managers and told them to get in touch and say that he had sent them. And... They were off to the fucking races. That is just... that. I think that is this part of the story that's the most unfathomable to me. The fact that they had one gig, and not only was it one of the most powerful record producers in the UK scene, but also that his name was the same name as the famous American comedian. Like That's like, all right, and now we're going to get discovered by Isaac Newton, the really famous record producer. It's just so strange. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting because I mean just in general whether it, whether it's you pretending like you're from a place or or not or just genuinely being from the place. Um I I know that this is a thing that happens. I know that um obviously there's a lot of examples of celebrities uh we've we've even talked about it on previous episodes, but celebrities who don't really resonate in the United States, but then they have these like large fan bases in other countries like David Hasselhoff with Germany and Jerry Lewis with the French and um, I'm sure there's plenty of other ones. We kind of talked about how Andrew WK Anvil, yeah, Anvil in, mm-hmm. in big in Japan, yeah. Right? And there and there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, I mean Andrew WK kind of had like some more notoriety in Japan. And there's there's other there's other bands that have resonated in like Japan specifically. There's a lot of American bands who kind of have popularity there when they didn't really find it in the in the U S. So so much to the point that it's kind of like a stereotype. Like big in Japan is like a thing. There's a Tom Waits song that's called Big in Japan, and there's and there's actually there's a lot of standups who uh, American standup comics who go over to the UK as almost this thing of like oh I can't really hack it in the United States in this like very large 
pool. So I go to the UK where it's like a smaller pond and then you have a lot of you have a lot of uh, comedians that that live over there and uh, have just sort of carved that out as their racket. And and that's really interesting. I mean, you know, it's even more interesting to almost do like the weird meta version of that where you're like, I realize that Americans can kind of stand out and they're a little bit more novelty over here. So we can just pretend like we're Americans. Uh, but it's also just interesting in general. I know it's it's done like I just kind of went through. But I, you know, I, I wonder why more people don't try to do that. Like if, if you're just it's it seems like kind of a smart move. It's like if, you, if you're really not that concerned with being this huge mega celebrity on the sort of commonly accepted is like the main stage of of fame, which is being large in the United States, which is just kind of globally regarded as like the one place that is the be all end all of fame. It seems like more people would kind of have that idea of like, oh, yeah, I'll just move over to the UK and just say I'm from America and people will like me. They met with Jonathan Shallot, the mega manager. During their initial meeting, they just straight up said, We're not getting out of bed for 65K. You're done now. You're just like, I'm done doing this voice. <laughs> but I mean, he's there. The, oh, no, technically that's the right. They're doing it in the American voice. We're not voice. getting yeah. out of bed unless it's 60. Uh, it, it, we're not getting out of bed for less than 65. We're not getting out of bed for less than 65K, dude. Pizza. <laughs> To which Shallot replied, How about 70, old chap? <laughs> that's, not even the, that's not even the type of British accent he has. He has like a London no. accent. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oi, Gov. How about 70? Shallot Global. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. How much of Shallot- that? How much of that is... Uh, he's, he says that it's funny because... Um, We'll, we'll we'll get more into this as the episode goes on and we'll talk about the documentary and sort of the later on years. But Gavin, as kind of like the primary driving force in just pushing the narrative of syllable and brains, you know, uh, Billy kind of in a lot of ways, even though they, they obviously both had a lot of de- dedication to this, he he's kind of much more in the passenger seat of just kind of being along for the ride. Gavin's the guy who is pushing this all the time and sort of consumed by it and he has these canned responses that he gives like if you watch different interviews uh and this happens all the time you know every every celebrity develops these things and they repeat them in different interviews and stuff like that so this isn't like unique to these guys in what they did with their whole act and their whole personas but he has these canned responses of like these things that he says every time throughout the years, whether it's like the interviews from 2013 all the way up to interviews that literally just came up a month ago. He said he has these specific phrases and these specific things that he says. And this is one of them. This I this this phrasing of like, we're not getting out of bed for less than 65K, like when he's telling retelling the story. Do you think that that's true, that that's really what they said? Do you think that they really had that level of like cockiness in that moment to like lay that down like that of like they're sitting there with this huge manager who's offering them like the potential of fame and fortune this thing that they've literally wanted all their lives and have been working towards for the last several years and they really pulled out that power move of like we're not doing this for less than 65,000 per person I don't know there's a lot of that with this story especially when you get into some stuff we're going to talk about later where there are multiple versions of the narrative yeah exactly you know? there's multiple versions and that's that's what I kind of mean is like even though there's the canned responses other details of it shift and change so it's very clear that it's not exactly the way that they tell it. Plus, I feel like Gavin is a little bit of an unreliable narrator 
because a little bit well i mean yeah he, he, a lot of it in just yeah. the way he tells the story he has an agenda he's he's uh he's trying to build up a mythology around himself for the for the sake of fame and opportunity there's a lot of subjectivity in taking anything that he says at face value plus there's some other stuff that we'll talk about I really want to talk about when we get to the documentary stuff. Neither of them come off to me, even in their fake persona characters, even in even in their American badass douchebag characters. Neither of them strike me as a Troy Duffy type who would just be like, fuck that 65 where we walk. I just I can't imagine either of those guys doing that, even in their characters. Yeah, like they this is all they wanted. And they were they were not cocky enough to risk losing that. Yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment, but the narrative that they say is that, which, you know, listener, do with that what you will. That one New Zealand listener, what do you think? Andrew at deepcutspod.com. Do you think that they actually said 65 or will walk? Shallot Global set them up with a studio, recording space, producers, and paid for them to make music. They, they basically, they did it. They won. They got the deal. They signed. You know, they were... Shallot Global was going to basically help them make a demo and then they were going to take that to record labels and they were going to be off to the races. They're winning at life. They're getting everything they want. All their wildest dreams are coming true. question is, did they feel guilty for pulling this grift and lying to all these people? No, not at all. This was their destiny. They were meant to make music. So what if they had to lie about where they were from? The music was still pure and it was still an accurate reflection of themselves. And that's what everyone was truly attracted to, right? Not the story, not the accents, not the show was the music right that part of that question is is really interesting to me because i that's what i that's what i've thought a lot about because you know really what what is the, what is the difference between this and andrew wk like what what is the difference between this and any other music group or whatever that has like crafted this fictional backstory other than that the record executives were in the know about it it even more illuminates this original problem, which is why they did this in the first place of this sort of like, I mean, I don't know, discrimination. I don't know if that's the right term to use. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's that far, but this idea that like nobody took Scottish people as rappers seriously. And at this time, there was this level of attention that you could get from being an American, specifically from being an American from California or, or whatever, that they had this idea to tap into. And the fact that if they had revealed it and came clean, it would have been such a bad fallout for them. They would have like lost their record deal and maybe had to pay back money and be sued and all the, and be arrested or whatever. Why? What What is the difference between that and any other time that a musician has come up with this fictional sort of kayfabe around them? Um, what What was so What was so bad about being Scottish? And being rapper, like I, I understand not getting your, be able to get your foot into the door because nobody was taking you seriously. But once you've done it, and once people have like given you the platform to listen to you because you tricked them into thinking that you were this thing that for whatever reason they view as more desirable, and then to like turn around and be like, okay, so you like our stuff, right? Yeah, it's great, it's amazing. Uh, okay, well, we're actually Scottish. Like what, what is the, like, I, it's so strange to me that that would have led to like, oh, well, fuck you then you're fired and you're sued and you're going to jail. You've deceived us. Like I get, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that just goes to prove the point though, that it's not about the work and most artistic achievements aren't typically not about the work. 
They're about the narrative surrounding the work. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm yeah. not saying that they're that craft is non-existent. Of course it is. But they had craft. The thing that people were really drawn to about it wasn't the craft, it was the narrative, yeah. which is a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point. And when that narrative then is revealed to be completely erroneous, the act of consumption is just like, well, I don't give a shit anymore because the thing I was coming here for isn't necessarily the craft, it was the narrative, which is hard. You choose one of those two paths, right? As a young person, as a young artist, you either choose to believe in yourself and think that the craft will propel you to the point that you need it to, or you choose to invent this story and construct a narrative. And everybody builds a narrative around themselves, whether it's the story that you tell yourself about your past traumas or the story you tell yourself about the things you will achieve in the future. Everybody tells themselves a story. The issue being these guys told themselves a story that even they knew wasn't true. And I think that's a very interesting paradigm to interrogate. And it's very interesting to evaluate where the craft diminishes importance and where the narrative takes over and vice versa. Because at a certain point, they just wouldn't have gotten as far as they would have if that craft wasn't there. But at the same time, you know, it's it's nature versus nurture. You know what I mean? It's 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 these unknowable combinations of ineffable substances. It's it's something that you just as an individual, it's a thought exercise that you're never going to actually really be able to get to the end of. But I think in evaluating stuff like this, it's undeniable how important building a narrative and constructing mystique and shaping a story around you as an artist is. Yeah. It's also really fascinating. I, I don't know if this is like the right time to talk about it or if there's like some other later point, but just the idea that they crafted this fictional aspect of themselves in order to be taken seriously and be culturally accepted because of that narrative, that sort of high concept narrative that they were rappers performing in the UK, but they were Americans from California. And now it's sort of become the opposite where now that's their narrative that they that people uh, are interested in them because of. Yes, because yeah, of the, that'll, we, we will definitely yeah. talk about that during the, the documentary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Also, hmm. A, a, a fake narrative that you tell yourself that even you know isn't true. Sounds familiar to me. Is that something you maybe want to tip your hat to, Dave? What are you talking about? So from here, Shallot goes back to Island Records, right? He shows them the demo tapes, and they just make millions of dollars. No. Shallot then goes around to the various record labels and tries to start a bidding war. Sibyl and Brains perform a showcase for industry power players. Sony is interested and they're going to make a huge offer, but they quickly realized, they being syllable and brains, that they can't work with the Sony executive because they have to go back to the US to record, and the guy asks them questions about California after their big showcase, and they're immediately just like, oh, this guy's bad news, we can't work with this dude. Yeah, first of all, because there's video footage of this, they actually have this performance on tape, and first of all, it's so, it's like, with the knowledge that we have now to watch the video, I mean, I'm sure if you watched it beforehand, you wouldn't think anything of it, but it's so funny to watch it now knowing what we know, because when he asks them where they're from, there's like this, you can tell that like, even at this time, even though they've committed to these characters and they've committed to this plan of pretending like they're from California and pretending like they're American, they haven't quite taken a dive off the deep end to where when asked about this, they kind of like look at each other <laughs> like and, and you know, it, to I'm like I said, I'm sure in the moment 
people probably didn't think too much of it because you would have to make a real huge leap in logic to be like, oh, that was weird. I think they're not really American. Like that would that would be a leap in logic. There's no reason to not think that somebody is from the country that they tell you that they're from. But whenever they ask him where they're from, there's they don't respond. They look at each other kind of like waiting for one of the other person to go. And it's really it's really funny and, and interesting to watch knowing that knowledge and seeing them kind of like be like, uh, and then one of them finally kind of sheepishly being like uh, California. Yeah. 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 Like they just they do not want to. They also say don't it. say San Jacinto in a way that an American would say it. They say San Jacinto. Yeah, like San Jacinto. Also, it's funny because they they chose this place purposely to be this weird little obscure place, uh, so that probably probably sheerly for the fact of like number one, they don't have to learn too much information, and number two, because nobody that they meet and talk to will ever have been there. But then this guy, this Sony guy, when they say that, he's like, oh, yes, I know it well. Like he just out of all of the millions of things they could have chosen, this one little obscure Southern California town, this guy is like, oh, yes, San Jacinto. I've been there many times. I Their, their primary uh, cuisine is mac and cheese bites or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. But he's like, happens yeah. to know about this place like. Yeah. And, and it's so they so they immediately panic. And you know, they, they're like, we can't take this big deal, because he's gonna want us to go back to the US and we don't have US passports. So they come up with a plan to sabotage the deal. Billy Boyd falsely accuses the Sony record exec of sexual harassment. Yeah, which, which is just so 2005. Yeah, I mean, it's so 2005. Yeah, in 2005, it's just like an offhanded thing of like, oh, yeah, that guy like hit on me or whatever. But like 2020, that's like, ruining a guy's whole life yeah fuck that so from here sony uk takes up the cause offering the two boys a deal they were worried about being charged with fraud initially but they threw caution to the winds and on friday the 13th 2004 signed a deal for two singles and an album fifty thousand dollars for the two singles a hundred thousand dollars for the full album at this point they wake up every day and they just make music do interviews make special appearances, rinse, and repeat. They're living the dream. They start to party at this time, though. A lot. The hype starts to build, and their years of grinding start to pay off. But is it really years of grinding at this point, though? Like, it kind of feels like it's like, yeah, they had their, like, self-publishing days, the DIY days, and then it kind of feels like they just kind of, like, fucked around in London for a while, got this showcase, got this deal, and then they just make it they just play up the like, no, we really grinded for like fucking years. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it does definitely seem like they totally fell into this. Like this came seemingly very easily, um, which is just even more just so strange that all they had to do was say that they were from California and then like success was just laid at their feet. That's so well, weird. They, they did live as Americans for yeah. years. Yeah, but I, yes. yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to discount. Like I said before, I did. I, after an hour, I was done. Um, but but also, uh, the Gavin in 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 a in a podcast interview, he he kind of talked about this in a in an interesting way that I thought was it was a unique it was a unique way of thinking about it, and just an interesting example of differences in perspective, sort of informing experience that he talked about how in those years 
after they had gotten the deal and they were just making the, the, the music, he talked about the fact that in the case of a lot of musicians who would be in this situation, this would feel like this whole process of while they were recording this album and the whole lead up to this would have felt like this fight, this climb to trying to make it over the hump. Like, okay, like we've got our chance. We've got this deal. We've got an opportunity to make an album. And now like we have to do this right. We have to, we have to nail this. And it's our one shot to actually become successful, huge celebrities or huge successful musicians. That's probably a period of a lot of stress and a lot of uncertainty of not knowing where this is going to go, if it's going to pan out, if they're going to completely fuck it up and tank it. But for them, because they started this entire process with somebody telling them to their face, you are never going to make it because of just who you are as a person. You are Scottish. You're never going to be successful as a rapper because that was the first point that they started at because of that and because they had sort of like figured out the how to hack the code to basically get into a secret room that they didn't have access to that entire period of their lives making that album and stuff it was just a carefree time of fun because every day that they spent doing that was it was like borrowed time or like a, a free pass given to them because the whole thing started from them being told, like, you are fucked. You're not, you just, because of who you are, you cannot do this thing. So, yeah, he talked about it. And this was a recent interview. So maybe, you know, maybe he was sort of pushing that narrative early on. But in more recent years, he's kind of reflected on it of just like, yeah, that was just like hanging out, having the time of our lives. Because we didn't have to worry about any of that bullshit of being scared or anxious or uncertain. Because we already made it to this upper echelon of something that we were never we were told we were never going to have. Their years of grinding were finally paying off. By the way, how old do you think they are at this point? 30? 32? 28? No. They're 21 or 22 years old, which just, again, puts it into perspective of like how quickly this happened. They start to film everything for their website. They're making their music, doing their normal shuffle, but they're also building a cult following thanks to the ubiquity of the internet. They're basically a cross between Bam Margera and... Bam Margera. Doesn't Bam Margera rap or something? Actually, he does like a he does like a weird like southern rock type music. There you go. That's Bam Margera. Now everyone does this. They have their own YouTube channel and their own little creative ecosystem. But back in 2004, this wasn't the norm. Unfortunately, the duo start to devolve into a horrible cycle of drinking, bar fights, and dick jokes. Gavin starts developing night terrors. But these struggles of their career. What what I found interesting about that, whenever they describe the quote unquote night terrors, what he describes, I I thought it was so interesting that they were describing something and it seemed like seemingly along the way, Gavin or nobody involved in the production of the documentary or anybody in, in his life who ever talked to or, you know, if he ever saw a doctor about this. Never kind of put two and two together. But when he's describing the night terrors he had, he's he had, he's describing sleep paralysis that's just that's what he had a hundred percent he talks about how in the middle of the night he would like sort of be in this weird hallucinatory state where he would feel like there was some kind of like demon off to the side where he couldn't look over and see it but he could tell it was there and it would be sort of like a pressure on his chest that's that's sleep paralysis that's what he's describing i have that I've, i've had it since i was a kid um, and I think over time, it slowly goes away because it doesn't really happen to me anymore. 
it was very frequent when I was younger and then it got less and less. And now it's like once every I don't even know. It's so infrequent that I that I've lost track of the timing of it. But 100 percent, that's what he's talking about. He had sleep paralysis. Yeah. And it's also it's interesting, too, because it's it's so blatantly his subconscious being guilty about lying. Yeah. And they don't really hold him to task or even probe in the documentary or any interview I've ever seen with him. He kind of just is like, yeah, and then there was a fucked up period where everything got dark and we drank too much and I was gaining weight and I had all these night terrors. And then, they a, were and really, then a demon really... was, uh, was, was choking me at night. It was yeah. A... <laughs> like, really? Nobody's going to bring up the fact that this is obviously his subconscious being extremely guilt ridden over the fact that he's living as a separate human? I don't know. All right. And then our, uh, our big boy, our, our boys get a big break. They appear on TRL, well, the English TRL. They perform their debut single, Your Mum, because of course it's called Your Mum. They appear in a block called 2004's Next Big Thing with bands like Kasabian and Block Party. Online chatter, message boards start to light up. People from Scotland are like, what the fuck? I know those guys. I mean, let's just back up just a second. The The fact that they were on a lineup with Kasabian and Block Party is pretty, I mean, that's telling of how much they were being positioned as being the dude bro next big thing. Like mm-hmm. both Block Party and Kasabian were massive yeah. for, you know, whatever that probably five years between 2003 or whatever and 2010, somewhere in that time period. Like they each had their moment in the sun. Um, and that Block Party record, that shit is great. Was it called Weekend in the City? I love that record. Still do. So for them to get that push is a big signifier. You know, that that's not just something you, you fall backwards into. If they, if they into. hadn't fucked up, you'd you would have been spinning that syllable in brains. Dude, I'm I'm about to I'm about to buy the re-release of Syllable and Brains on vinyl and then go see them on their nostalgia tour where they only play things from The Loser or whatever their main record was supposed to be called. So basically it you know airs on TV and then everybody from their hometowns are just like, what the fuck? That's that's the dudes. That's that's obviously Billy Boyd and Gavin Baines. What a bunch of fucking narcs. Yeah. Yeah. If I if I uh, if I turn on my TV and I saw you just uh, on on TV just like doing a fucking Scandinavian accent, I'd just be wearing like, robes with long blonde wig. I'd be like, hell yeah. You go. Sjordan Stegensjard. Yeah. That the hell yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't fucking rat you out. This is my music. I'm here for this Jordan Figgins yard. This is my debut record, The Evil Dead. Hell yeah. I'd I'd buy that shit. I'd buy that I'd buy the deluxe edition that came you with your s- that came with your like little mini booklet that's like your biography. And I'd don't be pay l- attention to the drawings. They don't look anything like the Dave Baker. <laughs> now it's like going to like weird Italian. <laughs> this is this whole episode is just the worst impressions episode. I can't say that I would be out there trying to blow up your spot. But the thing that's so fascinating to me about this turn of like, okay, so they get on TV, the internet message boards at the time are like, fuck those dudes. I know those guys. That's the guy who pushed me into a locker in college or whatever. It doesn't travel outside of the ecosystem of the internet because social media wasn't as ubiquitous. So it was just contained on these specific message boards. So, you know, at this point, Boyd and Baines are, they're expecting to be found out by this. They're like, fuck, these motherfuckers are writing, but it's us. Oh shit, there's no call from the lawyer. Oh, all right, cool. Let's keep going. And they, it just. Nobody cares what these Scottish people say. <laughs> yeah. But at this point, they kind of, they come up with a plan. So their, their plan is that they're going to come clean when the album is released. But release schedules don't work the way they thought they work. They were expecting like the day that the album drops. 
And then they would do a big press release or something and be like, ha we're actually Scottish. But they got ensnared in a six-month snipe. Haggis. Haggis, yes. We, got, we, all, we eat haggis. They basically, you know, there's the release, uh, release dates don't work that way. There's like six months of press cycles and years of touring. And you just, it's not, it's not like a movie where there's a definitive date. Basically, where, much like anything else in the world, there is never a good time to stop lying. Yeah. That's why people get so lost in their lies, because there's never a good time to come clean. And so basically at this point, Boyd has been, you know, in a long distance relationship with Mary, his his high school sweetheart or secondary school sweetheart, whatever that is in Scotland. It's not high school. You know, he's been in a long distance relationship with her this entire time. And she kind of gives him they an ultimatum. They went to bagpipe she- school together. <laughs> <laughs> basically, she, she gives him an ultimatum where she's like, are we moving forward or not? Like, what is happening in our relationship? What is the goal for us? And he, I think for a long time, kind of grappled with that of how do I give up this thing that I love in order to pursue this other thing that I love, which I think a lot of artists struggle with. And ultimately, he decided to, for lack of a better term, try and have his cake and eat it too. And he got married. So they had a little, you know, small-ish reception back in Scotland. And he did it. He got married and... Now they're going to go and have their life, right? Not really. He still lives in London and they're still making music. So Baines and Boyd's, their relationship starts to get frayed because of this tension of both of them being pulled in different directions where Baines is obviously like, come on, man, like, let's fucking do this. Let's make the music. And Boyd is like, yeah, but I have these other commitments and this life that I'm supposed to be starting with Mary. And they, they kind of. Yeah, and, Mar- and Mary just like, it wasn't even that he had a, a relationship that was kind of pulling him away in the natural way that having a relationship would she like actively was a type of person who's just like i want to just be a regular nothing person from a small town like i feel like that's kind of mean the, the way that's phrased but yes i i she would definitely no that's, i mean that's but that's 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 true i mean i'm not i don't think i don't i'm not trying to be insulting like that's actively what she wanted like she did she she would not want to be with him if he was like a huge celebrity like she seemed like she just actively had zero interest if not an aversion to anything outside of the normal track that a small town person would have agreed yeah she's not she's not somebody who is theatrical or gregarious or outgoing and in the way that that billy boyd is where he's kind of this kind of like theater kid trapped in a dude bro's body and in the documentary multiple times she's kind of just like yeah i didn't get it it was really frustrating to me i didn't want this to be a part of our life but it was a part of our life and it was just something i had to deal with for a period of time yeah which is interesting because you know i guess if they were like really annoying or if it caused them to like be a, a an asshole to you like i would get that but i don't know if i i feel like if i if somebody was like clearly had some kind of goal that they were working towards i feel like i'd be more understanding of it i think it takes a very specific type of person to be able to see it through that lens the majority of humanity would just be like you're fucking lying what are you doing? You're lying. And yeah. I, I can't I can't say which side of that is morally correct, but typically lies are not are not met well within any culture. So then at this point, the boys get a call. The record company calls and says, We got you guys an opening gig playing for your old pals D twelve. And Baines and Boyd start to panic. Yes, they've said that they knew D twelve and Eminem. 
and that they were all scene friends and they learned all their tricks from these guys, but they'd never actually met any of them before. So what did they do? They just decided to double down. They showed up to the venue and they were going to be the opening act. They just pretended to know D12. And D12 kind of just went along with it, thinking that they must have forgotten these two idiot white dudes from some tour in days gone by. What and a, it all what went a gamble. off without a hitch. Yeah, what, dude, what, a, what, what a, a fucking gamble. Because, you know, they, they, they could have just said, like, because, you know, like, throw out the fact that they lied and pretended like they were Americans and that their whole thing is is fake. Like, just pretend, like, put that aside. Every every person, every, every uh, not every person, but every musician or whatever, anybody trying to, like, break into the inter- entertainment industry, like, it's a pretty common thing that they make up embellishments about their lives and come up with these stories. And, you know, it's it's a common thing here in L.A. that everybody's like, oh, yeah, like, I'm friends with such and such. And then in reality, like, they just worked as a PA, like, and on a production that they also worked on and they like were introduced to them and in LA like there's this weird unspoken thing where people refer to people as their friends if they've like met them once I feel like it would have been too shocking to anybody if they were like yeah we were just kind of making that up like we don't actually know them we were just kind of bragging and I don't, I don't think that that would have been met with too much controversy I feel like they would have been like oh shit oh well okay uh you're you're still going to go on tour with them, I guess. Well, they, they fucking rolled um, those dice. But they rolled and- the dice. And, and like as much as I feel like that wouldn't have been a big deal to anybody if they had like admitted that they lied about that. I don't think that would have compromised their greater lie. But it certainly would have maybe in some subtle way chipped away at their credibility. Like it would have been like the beginning of a bit of a chipping away of it so as much as i feel like they could have gotten away with just admitting that they didn't know them and just being fine they took the even bigger gamble of like fuck it let's just do it and and just walk up to them and pretend like we know them and it paid off like they they, they, uh they rolled two sixes on that one yeah two oh yeah two sixes and they came up with a d12 d12 This quantifiable bullet dodged doesn't make things any easier, though. Gavin uses his perfectionism as an excuse not to release The Loser, what was to be their next record release. His constant tinkering and re-recording caused them to miss the holiday 2005 window. Is Gavin subconsciously fucking things up? Is he nervous that if he puts out a full record that it will all come crashing down? Well, his feelings don't matter, because tragedy is just around the corner. Sony goes through a downsizing, and the corporate A&R guys decide to delay the loser by six months. All of the, in air quotes, ally people that they had at Sony get let go, and they're ostensibly shadow banned. Siren's call of a family starts to lure Billy Boyd away from the potential goldmine that is syllable in brains. Is it ever going to happen? Are they ever really going to make it? Well, they stopped talking. Eventually, Boyd moved back to Scotland, Gavin spirals into a deep depression, and overdoses on pills in his sister's apartment. Eventually, the lawyers called. They'd figured it out, and their contracts got pulled. And for the sake of this script, I kind of combined their stories to make it a little bit more concise, but they tell two distinctly different stories. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of of differing details between... um, And I want to talk a lot about the story presented in the documentary versus 
other versions of the story told um, both at the time as well as years later and more recently. There's many different details in the story from like interview to interview. Act three, the greatest tragedy in Scottish life. Gavin keeps performing his brains for a while. He just can't let it die. He has some middling success, but without a record contract and without the support of his manager, who cuts him loose, it doesn't really go that well. As of 2013, when the documentary was released, Billy has a giant chest tattoo that says family first in massive sprawling script. Do you think he might be overcompensating for something? Maybe like, oh, I don't know, a decade of stringing Mary along and resisting starting a family. He ends up working as an oil operator on a North Sea oil derrick, helicoptering to work every day. Gavin performs in a bad rap rock band, but it's just not the same. And the following is minimal at best. However, after the documentary, The Great Hip Hop Hoax, is released, they had a second gust of momentum. They self-produced an EP titled Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but the album didn't really go anywhere. The mega stardom that they've been searching for still eludes them. But maybe they've learned a Hallmark card lesson through this whole process. That art sometimes is just about the process of making it. But, you know, fair dues. Like, I never hate on anyone, to be honest. Like, the whole keep it real thing and rep your whatever, that's just bullshit. You know, like, fucking keep it real and make money. There is no world where success for these two guys is just the act of making music. Like, they talk repeatedly about how they don't just want to be a guy in the scene. They want to... They want megastardom, but the the likelihood of that happening, I mean, I don't agree with this, but the fact that most people who get famous are not a 45-year-old person is just kind of a reality in the world of performing. It's very rare that somebody has that ascent later in life. Even somebody like Brian Cranston, who everybody points to, is like, well, he was X years old when, when Breaking Bad happened. Yeah, but he was a successful working actor for like two decades. Yeah, but Dave... But Dave, you're leaving out an even more impressive story than Brian Cranston. Alan Rickman, his first movie he was ever in was Die Hard, and he was 47 years old. Yeah, but didn't he also work as a theater actor for like two decades prior to that? What bigger of a theater actor can you be than pretending to be an American guy for two years? <laughs> they were like the world's first YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess so. This is a good part for us to talk about the differences between the documentary and the the. Well, here's you know. Yeah, here's the thing about that, and this is the thing that I that I really wanted to talk about is that so the greatest hip hop hoax comes out, and it's a it's this documentary about this story and the fact that this just this lie that they crafted and lived as and sort of the rise and fall and the first of all just as a quick aside the interesting thing about this whole story is that when you start to read this we're all we're all we're fairly versed in story tropes and how the trajectory of how stories typically go so as one starts to read about syllable and brains you the assumed ending of this whole story is that they got outed at the height or at the cusp of their success they were outed and revealed that they were faking it and it ruined their career. 
but that doesn't actually really happen. It, it's it's interesting because maybe they, I don't know. Well, that's the, the, the so at, at least how the documentary purports it. They were never outed. They just their career fizzled out because of this infighting and sort of maybe them being consumed by guilt in some kind of subconscious way. But at any rate, it's presented as like they were never actually outed. They just kind of quit. And then in so much to the fact that later on of his own volition, Gavin or fucking brains just revealed it casually during a show. He was like, by the way, I'm Scottish. And uh, but but besides that, the interesting thing is, is that this whole documentary is made about this. But the documentary itself is also kayfabe because the thing that so this so the documentary is just basically similar to the story we've told you. The way that the documentary ends is that they've basically so Billy, they have a falling out. Billy decides that he wants to he's tired of waiting for this to pan out. Gavin is sort of self-sabotaged by pushing back to the release of these singles the whole Sony restructuring thing happens. So they kind of miss their window. And so Billy is like, fuck this. So he leaves. They already weren't talking to each other. He goes back to just a normal life and they never talk to each other again. And Gavin is obsessed with the idea of fame and he just won't let the dream die. So he just stays in London, continuing to try to carve out a music career while Billy starts a family with Mary in Scotland gets this job working on an oil rig, has two kids. And he goes into all this detail about how he never missed it. It wasn't a thing where a week later, two weeks later, a year later, he realized that he had fucked up and he wished that he had the fame or whatever. And he says, like, I it just I never missed it. I left. I never looked back. And he, he shows the chest tattoo that says family first and all that stuff. And the whole documentary ends with this. It's almost like the documentary is almost like editorialized. The the documentary has a perspective. And the perspective is like Gavin is kind of like a sad, washed up loner who's clinging on to a dream that died a long time ago. And Billy has moved on and he's become a mature adult. And he has, even though he's not famous he has carved out a more happy life for himself in his small town family than Gavin has chasing this dream in London and just being depressed, which is which is which is odd that they sort of like took that editorialized narrative stance in the documentary. It ends with this cross cutting thing where the last whatever the last five minutes of the documentary keep cutting from Gavin performing at little shows in London with his band and then talking about chasing the dream and kind of being presented as sort of delusional kind of, and then cutting to Billy suiting up to go to work, putting on this flight suit and this life vest. And it's all in slow motion. It's like, it's almost, it's almost presenting him as this heroic figure, like the blue collar hero. And then he used to piss in his hands and rub it in his face. But now he's learned about work. Yeah. And then it all culminates with him getting into the helicopter and then flying over the sea to this oil rig. And that's into the the literal sunset. Yeah. And that's how literally rides off into the sunset. And that's how the movie ends. It ends on this note of like they've they've gone their separate ways. They they their friendship ended back then. They haven't talked again since then. And even to the point, it, it's so interesting how they editorialized 
the the ending of the movie because the way that the, the literal way that the, the documentary ends is that they ask Gavin if he had to do it over again would he do it the same way and he goes that's a good question what did Billy say and then it cuts to Billy getting into the helicopter and flying away which is like almost saying like Gavin is still he's living in the past he's still clinging on to this thing his he he still doesn't know what he wants out of life he, he has he's directionless he, he's so directionless that he doesn't even know the answer to this question. And he wants to know what Billy says. He's deferential to him that way. And then it cuts to Billy flying off into the sunset. He's moved on. He doesn't care. They don't even show you what his answer was because yeah, he, it literally doesn't fuck? matter to him. Yeah. Um, but the whole thing is fake because the same year that the fucking documentary came out, they released a new album off the strength of the documentary. So I've watched recent interviews where Gavin has said, like very recent, like a month ago, where Gavin has said that the filmmakers presented a false narrative. That he he's like, yeah, they kind of they the way that they ended it kind of wasn't accurate and they kind of chose this direction of presenting this false narrative. Um and they didn't really show the reality of the situation. But I don't know if I believe that or not. And I and I, part of me kind of feels like and a large part of me kind of feels like th- this. It was all a plan. The movie was this promotional piece of material. And from the very start, they planned on the movie re- being released and using it to restart their rap careers because it wasn't like, oh, we made this documentary and in the production of it, we kind of recon- reconnected and then we got to talking and then eventually we decided we w- would want to make new music because you would assume that like if that happened, the, m- the movie came out in 2013, you would have to expect that at the very least the album would come out the year after. At the very least, you got to assume that it would take that long if their discussions started from the time that they were making the movie. But it came out the same year, like almost alongside the movie. So they were already making it. So this whole the whole way they're presenting it in the in the in the documentary it's obviously not true. They've they're obviously they've obviously already reconnected. They're already back to being friends. They're already they've already been talking about doing this music. They've already been writing new music together. But in the movie, they present it like they've had a falling out and they've just never looked back and that Billy has chosen this life of a small town family. And the whole thing is a lie. Well, it's also interesting, too, when you look at the divergence between that critical moment of when they stop. Because in the documentary, like you said, there's no decisive like, okay, and now we get found out by the lawyer or now this happens or now somebody on the street starts screaming at me like in the Marathon Man. Ah, you're a Billy Boyd. You're a Billy Boyd or whatever, you know. Great Scottish accent. Thank you. Uh, but in interviews that they've done later, like specifically, there's a Vice interview where Gavin Baines says that the lawyers started figuring out that they weren't who they said they were specifically because they needed their passports in order to f- file some sort of documents or something. And they kept pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. And that eventually the lawyers came to them and were like, look, you have to tell us what's going on. We're not sure exactly what's going on, but something is going the fuck on. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not in the documentary at all. Yeah, they leave that um, whole thing out. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, whether that was the end of the end of it or whether that was just like a conversation that they didn't want in the documentary because it's cleaner and sadder if it just kind of their friendship dissolves and then you get this heroic Billy being an oil worker and having a family and, you know, the sad heel turn of Gavin being the, the, um, guy who can't give up the dream or, or what have you. Um, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I buy any of it. Like there's, I mean, there obviously they did certain things like, yes, they got the record deal, but part of me is kind of like, especially because they are now attempting to canonize themselves as like, we lied our way to the top. Like they're trying to retroactively make themselves George Lazenby. You know what I mean? Like they didn't, really succeed i mean it's an interesting story which is why we're talking about it and there's lots of food for thought around the morality of lying and recontextualizing artistic endeavors around a personal narrative like there's lots to discuss but in terms of this meteoric rise of lying your way into the room it's not equivalent to other people who have done similar things george lazenby literally became james bond and he fucked it up for himself, but he became James Bond. It's not like they put out a record that is either globally acclaimed or sold a million, you know, copies or, you know, any, any of those things. Like they put out a single, which is still amazing. It's a, it's, uh, it's very, very impressive, but it is a different thing. And they present it like we're, you know, we lied our way all the way up to being friends with Madonna. And like he, you know, he, they say it in interviews multiple times of like, yeah, you know, we were hanging out with Madonna and Green Day and whatever. And like the real story is that one of them lied their way into an awards show and went into the after party area and drank while standing next to Green Day. Like <laughs> those are very different things. So a lot of the stuff in the documentary is them espousing this desire to come clean and stop lying and you know billy boyd says multiple times about you know at a certain point you're lying about the lies about the lies about the lies and part of me wonders you know do they even really know what the the real truth of the matter is because there are so many lies and contradicting memories and stories i don't know yeah i find i find it watching the documentary and having no other frame of reference and then after the fact doing more research and kind of learning more it's very strange because I feel like, I mean, I feel like Gavin is relatively presented as he is, if not maybe his like sad sack, like stuck in the pastness is maybe embellished a little bit, but ostensibly the, the character that Billy is portrayed as in the movie is completely false because he's presented in the movie as like, He's just fully blue collar, small town dad guy. He doesn't care about this anymore. He's moved on. He's wearing like a polo shirt. <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. His his hair is kind of done in a way where he just looks like a normal dude. But then in interviews from the time, from the same time as the movie came out, where they're syllable and brains, he's 
dressed completely differently. He's wearing T-shirts. He's got like a kind of a styled look to his hair and his. I believe believe they call it the fuck boy. Yeah. The mannerisms and his speaking style is different than it is in the movie that in the movie it's presented as like he's just become like a small town Scottish guy. But then in the interviews, he's back to the syllable. He's I mean, he's got the accent now. He's got the Scottish accent, but he's still doing the like goofy class clown syllable guy character. Yeah. 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 And so it's so weird that his whole character being presented in the movie seems like it's completely fabricated to just just to get like a more compelling story where it's like, okay, so this story is going to be stronger if we present it like you've kind of gone to these different ends of the spectrum and it just it all feels like it was all performative for once again a goal of accomplishing something to further their musical career which i kind of love i kind of think that's it's equally as interesting as this kind of like performative public apology and like self-flagellization as a means of expulsion of a previous version of the operating system you know what i mean almost where you're kind of just like yeah don't look don't look at windows vista anymore don't look at that don't look at that now we're on leopard baby and leopard is really sorry but it's gonna be great and you're gonna love it and we're still really good at rapping but also we're scottish (laughs) yeah i mean the and going back to the conversation we started earlier uh they were they were crafting their careers off of this narrative which was that they were american rappers in the english music scene and that was that was the that was the narrative that they were capitalizing off of to get noticed and find opportunities and now in the same way they are using the narrative that they were these rappers who created this hoax and were lying about where they were from as a narrative to to utilize to find to further their careers and find opportunities so in the same way that they lied about where they came from and all the details of their backstory now with this new narrative it's somewhat true i mean i it's true i, I don't i don't want to say somewhat cuz all these things did in broad strokes happen but even then they are crafting and massaging it to to be more perfect for their for their needs and and and, i mean i don't even think there's anything wrong with that like that's smart of them to do and also every artist who's ever done anything has done the exact same thing Mm -hmm. like do you really think that there's a reason why george lucas pivoted to making children's films after he made this weirdo crazy art movie that sunk american zoetrope yes because he needed to reframe the narrative that he was commercially viable he was like oh fuck i can't have a whole career making weirdo art movies like thx 1138 i'm gonna do what i think is the safest thing financially which is to make a nostalgia picture about childhood aimed at teenagers who are they have disposable income and they'll go to see movies great that's what i'm gonna do and i i i joined amway and i'm still in it to this day deep cuts brought to you by amway uh yeah and i mean that that's a good that's a good dovetail into 
uh, just the idea of the morality of it or, you know, what, whether it was right or wrong or whatever. And I guess ultimately my thought on it is I don't see anything wrong with anything that they did. Like it, it, it was a it was a victimless other than that time that he accused that guy of sexual assault. Well, the other the other component was, of that that left me thinking about was like, how can you get consent from a sexual partner who doesn't know who you are? Does that make sense of what I'm asking? You are maybe it's not even that everybody does that. Everybody embellishes aspects of themselves to ingratiate themselves into a social ecosystem or to make somebody fall in love with them or to have a one night stand. Like everybody plays those roles to a certain degree. It's just this is such an extreme that like. I don't know. It, it just feels really scummy to me. I don't know. I don't know. That's the, that's the aspect of it that feels really weird. to Yeah, me. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I might agree with you if it was something more drastic. I mean, I know it was drastic, but if it was something more like if it was like if I have a million dollars or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, if I was if I was like saying you're rich or. You know, whatever, saying that you something that was more pointed towards actually having emotional repercussions for doing something like that and then them being tricked into thinking that you were something that you weren't like i can't imagine anybody feeling violated by the fact that they thought that they were sleeping with an american but they were actually sleeping with a scottish person except except for like a deeply bigoted against scott maybe everybody in the uk would have felt violated by that you don't you really don't think that if you had a person that you spent time with however long and you were intimate with and then you found out that they were just a completely separate different person yeah you wouldn't feel violated yeah it's i mean in some ways yeah the business side of it who cares the artistic side of it i think is very interesting the interpersonal side of it developing friendships and everything like that feels weird to me but also how do you know who you can trust and because they did tell people their backing band all knew that they were Scottish. They were all their friends. But when it veers into relation, like potentially deep relationships where people are needing to give consent to do things, and I don't know, that's the area that feels very strange and murky to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, obviously, I don't have the answer for it of like, oh, well, after three dates, that's when they should have told everybody that they were actually Scottish. Like, I don't fucking know. The other thing that I was so curious about is, do you think that Mary and Billy Boyd's had an had an arrangement that he could fuck around with other people? Yeah, they they don't they don't reference that at all. There, there's like a there's a very vague reference to that where Mary in the interviews says, like, it was it was a little bit stressful during that period of like him being there and wondering what he was doing and trying to call him, but he's too busy because he's at the Brit Awards. And then at the end of the documentary, she says, I, I don't, I don't really worry or think about what he did. Then it doesn't change my feelings about him. And those are the only mentions of it. And it's, it's, it's almost this weird omittance. It's like an elephant in the room where you're you're expecting once again going going back to that story trope thing you're expecting the the beat in the story where he 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 cheats on her or or she finds out he's cheating on her 
And that's when he realizes that he's hit rock bottom and that he's gone too far with this. And that's the beginning of his arc to leave and go back and live in Scotland to become a family man. But that never happens. They never talk about that at all. So it's a weird elephant in the room where you have this whole story about these two guys living a debaucherous lifestyle, acting as these characters that are not them as people, doing all these crazy things, filming themselves, partying and running around and drinking and, you know, binge drinking and fucking going crazy on trains. And they keep referencing being around all these attractive women and things like that. But they just never... They never, um, they never, they never put a pin in that part of it of like, oh, did like what happened with Billy? Was he, did he remain like faithful to her through that entire two years? He never once did anything adulterous or whatever. Like they just, it's just, it's completely glossed over, which is, which is very strange. Yeah. It's, it, you're right. It is a big, just kind of blind spot. The other thing that's really funny to me about the documentary is the fact that Gavin Baines admits to masturbating in an American accent, which I don't even know how you do. I, I, as soon as he said that, I was like, what does that mean? Does that mean you like grunt differently? Like, what is, what is that? You don't talk to yourself? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I was like, oh, Gavin, this is so ridiculous. I love that you just said I masturbated in an, in an American accent. <laughs> I do it full Scottish. We know. We we definitely know. Um, yeah. Another thing is that the, the something I thought about after watching the documentary and then looking more into the other parts of the story that are kind of left out of the documentary or have happened since then. Um, I I I feel sorry for Mary. I wonder. I wonder what what she thinks about everything because in the in the documentary, she is presented as this very kind of like demure this very demure person who does not want to be involved in any of the weird drama she doesn't like the the idea of her life being drawn focus to um all of the stuff with him his fame and being in being hanging out with all these celebrities and being in this hip-hop world doesn't seem like it's her cup of tea at all and so in the movie, it's sort of it's sort of drawn as this happy ending of like he has this he had this girlfriend and he did this thing for several years and she stuck by him that whole time and kind of put in the work and let him get that out of his system. And then he came home and they had a happily ever after ending where he put all that stuff behind him, became the small town normal guy that she wanted and that's just their life now. But in real life, that didn't happen at all. He went back to doing the rap stuff and trying to kickstart their 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 career. Um, so the 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 real life, uh, at least in the way that Mary's presented in the documentary, I just really wonder how she felt or thought about that second coming of them trying to be rappers. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If they had released a full album, do you think it would have gone differently? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they keep saying in the documentary, like we were trying to take over the world, not them specifically, but like other people, like their managers and things like that. Like everybody was acting like they were going to be like Eminem level. Um, 
I don't think that that would have happened. But I do think I do think that they would have been maybe a couple rungs below that. But I do think that they would have found some fame. Their their music is it's like it's this very specific type of kind of uh, they they their style. It's it's not the like it's not the like British grime style. It's it's like that early two thousands Aesop rock. Also like, a lot of Twista, the, that whole like dictionary. Like that it's, type it, of Yeah, it's dictionary thing. it's yeah. dictionary rap, which yeah. I think a lot of people that it's I mean, there's a lot of artists like that. There's, you know, like like Aesop Rock and you know, even even Eminem has a little bit of that. He's not really exactly that style, but he kind of has a little bit of it in him. Or logic or token, uh, or um the fuck is his name watsky they are typically white guys who use very very well crafted lyrical acrobatics as sort of the main event of of what they do so it's a lot of like really intricate really fast rapping and it usually has a lot of like academic wordplay to it and it's it's kind of criticized within the hip-hop community as kind of not really having a lot of meaning or feeling to it it's just a lot of like words. It just doesn't have the same meaning or passion or perspective that other types of hip hop have. And people like it, but I think in general, it's kind of sort of thought of as kind of like a parlor trick kind of. That's the kind of stuff that they do. I don't think that a an artist like that would ever be at the level of like an Eminem or a huge celebrity. I'm just using Eminem as an example because he's another white rapper, but... I don't think they would have ever reached that level because I just don't think that type of music is capable of being at that level. Yeah, um, the only thing but, I would but say... But I, I do think that they would have been a known commodity. I think the only thing that I would offer as a counterpoint is that I could very easily see a world where, similar to how Bam Margera used skateboarding as a jumping off point into becoming just a kind of general youth culture figure, I could very easily have seen these guys using rap to then have their own reality show mm-hmm. or, you know, sketch show or whatever, and then have that be almost like, oh, yeah, that's right. They used to be rappers, but they're really the guys who eat dog feces or whatever it is that they were doing on their show. Yeah, totally. Um, um, I don't I don't necessarily know that they would have been anything other than like, oh, yeah, remember those guys who were not jackass, but... You never know. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any? Do you have any closing thoughts about this? About the about syllable and brains. The, the biggest thing. The biggest thing that I find interesting is just the fact that they made a documentary about how they lied and crafted a kayfabe world around them in order to find success. But the documentary, in and of itself, is also a crafted lie kayfabe story to use as a piece of promotional material to kickstart their career it didn't really happen and now it's happening again because they just did this vice video and he's starting to do more press now and i watched a podcast i listened to a podcast that was from like a month ago so it's like every once in a while this thing can kind of pop to the surface whether 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 they're sort of doing it on purpose or it just kind of organically happens and then whenever it starts to happen they try to like write it like okay we're people are starting to talk about us again like now's our chance and then they you know they 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 
they start doing press and interviews and things like that to the point where I feel like we could probably get those guys to or specifically brains. I guarantee we could get that guy to talk to us. Yeah. But that I guess that leads to my other my real closing thought, which is um, as much as it's kind of not actually true and it was just kind of crafted, the thing that got to me the most in the documentary, which I think kind of gets to me a lot. And I don't, I don't know what this says about me as a person, but um, there there's something very tragic to me about friendships being destroyed by things. And I always feel a, a great sense of sadness from hearing stories where two people or a group of people were like very close friends and, you know, were, were friends for years and decades or they grew up together or whatever. They did everything together and they were like, you know, super close in that way. And then to achieve something as cool as becoming a successful or on your way to becoming a successful rap duo. It's really sad to me that you can accomplish something like that with a friend. And then that thing can actually destroy the friendship. That's so tragic to me. And uh, I have I have a particular thing about friendships and friendships being destroyed. And that 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 narrative like really gets to me. Uh, and it, it it's like one of the saddest things I can think of is a friendship being destroyed for any reason, let alone a friendship being destroyed because you built something together. That seems so ironically sad to me. What makes it even sadder, as much as that really wasn't actually true and they were in reality, they were reforming and doing an album and it wasn't the way the documentary painted it as. I think to a certain degree, it still kind of is true. I think that I think that Billy's attachment and involvement in syllable and brains is very tenuous and very kind of like, eh, sure, I'll give it a shot. But ultimately, he's not as dedicated to it as Gavin is. So if you look at their YouTube channel, it kind of paints this very sad picture, at least to me, where I'll, I'll bring I'll actually bring it up right now. So this is this is the point where the documentary had come out and they were releasing their their album, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So they they did this music video for a, for a song on the album called Eat Your Brains. They have this moment where they're like, yeah, we're back. We're making music again. Seven years we're together. ago. We've reunited and we're making, making an album. They come out with this music video. Music video, you know, gets a decent amount of, it's 70,000 views. That's obviously wasn't some huge rise back to fame, but it seems like they got, probably largely from the strength of the documentary, they actually got some eyes on this music video. But then you can tell that kind of nothing came of that because you have this string of videos uploaded at that time. So the, the YouTube channel starts seven years ago when the, al- when, the, when the documentary and the album came out. And there's a bunch of videos from that time, seven years ago in 2013. And then after a bunch of clips of live shows and promotions and making ofs of the music video and all this stuff the music video drops and then nothing for a year so you can see that moment where like this build up and then the music video dropped and then nothing happened they no 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 traction was gained and they just didn't post anything for a whole year and then they posted one random little clip. It's literally 34 seconds long a year later. And then two years after that, there was so after that one clip, 
there's nothing for two years posted on this channel. And then two years later, they somebody uploaded just all the tracks from the album as YouTube videos. And then nothing for another two years is posted on this channel. And then after two years, two years ago, so 2018, then it just starts being a bunch of videos of Gavin by himself rapping. So it's like clips of him doing freestyles and clips of songs that he made alone that are just Brains McLeod. And that goes on for the whole rest of it. Starting from two years ago up until six hours ago, it's all just Gavin stuff. And so you kind of see this story play out where they reunited. There was all this hype of bringing the band back together. The documentary comes out and then it kind of just doesn't go anywhere. And you can see the interest by Billy kind of fizzle out. Maybe he just went back home. And then at the end of the day, it all just goes back to just being Gavin by himself, still trying to keep the dream alive. And the Vice video that came out a couple days ago, it's just Gavin. All the interviews that he's doing, all the podcast appearances he's doing, it's just Gavin. Billy's not involved in any of this stuff. So, you know, even though the documentary kind of conveyed a slightly inaccurate story for the sake of crafting a narrative that number one would be good, a better story for the movie, but also maybe to help promote their miraculous return. Um, it's still, it still kind of is true. It's still, it, it still kind of is true that this whole thing drove a wedge between them. And at the end of the day, no matter how much he sometimes gets Billy to come back and be involved in it, it's still just Billy living his life with his family and Gavin just kind of alone trying to keep this thing going. And that's super sad to me. Not even because of the idea of Gavin like trying to keep this dream alive and he's in his 40s still trying to be this like rapper. Um, but just more for the the friendship aspect of it and the fact that they were like so good of friends. They clearly admired each other immensely and now they're just not friends anymore. It's really sad to me. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com where you can pick up comics like Action Hospital or Fuck Off Squad or some of the other comics that are on there. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me back in my hometown working a blue collar job, supporting my family, having left this dream of running a successful podcast behind me. And uh, you can also find me at dapricerights.com. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.